Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Tim Buckley, Director of Energy Finance Studies Australasia for AIVA. Now, AIVA stands for the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. So unlike many climate change focused organizations, AIVA focuses more on the financial analysis and the impact of climate change on especially the energy, uh, but also companies more broadly. So Tim, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So Tim, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Because you did probably start out a little bit differently than most people that are today involved in climate change uh, action. Certainly. Uh, I think it is important context because uh, whilst you mentioned climate change is uh, the key focus, we actually focus on the nexus of energy, finance and climate. And I mention that because it's important to my background and to IEFA's existence we employ finance executives. So I was uh, managing director, head of equity research at Citigroup for 17 years. I was at Macquarie Bank before that. I then ran a global incubated um, startup fund investing in energy technologies for a couple of years in China in particular. And it was the time in studying and investing and looking at Chinese companies that effectively is the genesis of my work in IEFA because what I realized was the Chinese companies were investing and doing things that weren't even being considered in the West, and yet we weren't reading about them in the Western energy analysis. So I thought, well, China is here stealing a march on us, and this is going to be a massive technology-driven disruption. And so, hence a long-winded answer, I'm not a climate analyst, I'm an energy finance analyst Uh, But obviously climate and decarbonisation is a key part of that technology disruption. So what sort of examples uh, in those Chinese companies make you think uh, about this topic? Well, actually, I was looking at that this week. Um, China has just put out a new white paper. The China State Grid has put out a new white paper talking about the massive investment that they're going to make in the next two to five years in making their internet of any internet of things for their smart grid and so we were analyzing the uh, investment that china's been doing now i was investing 10 years ago in one of the leading chinese smart grid operators it was a smart meter company and china announced in 2010 they were going to build 380 million smart meters 
which is sort of five or ten times what any country in the world's done. And for two years, the Chinese state grid paused investment entirely. So the company I was invested in almost went bankrupt, waiting for the government to determine what form of Internet of the Things they were going to mandate. And then once they did it, they announced 60 million units of orders per year for the next six years. So come 2018, they've rolled out 380 million smart meters across the entire country. And now they're going back and retrofitting every one of them to make them two-way AMI smart meters. So it was investing in that company. It was a little company called Wazion Group and investing and seeing what they were doing. And when China says it's going to do something, beware, they move. And it is a command economy. And in energy, that becomes a critical positive, as opposed to, obviously, from a political freedom perspective, it's got a different connotation. Yeah, that uh, immediately shows that in China, everything goes in big numbers, doesn't it? Everything about China is enormous. That is true. And so when we talk about wind and solar numbers, you've got to be a little careful. China installs a third or half the world's solar every year. But as you say, if they're half the world's coal consumption and they're doing something to decarbonize, they have to do half the world's solar every year. Everything about China is enormous. But your introduction that uh, made me think as well is that we often uh, think about this in terms of crisis. What can we do to stop this? But there's also another part of the discussion, which is about opportunities and, and, and new forms of economic uh, potential growth, especially in technology. Can you tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about that now, looking back sort of on your initial entrance into this sector? That's exactly how I entered the energy space. We were saying, well, this if there is this enormous risk and enormous stranded asset cost to society of decarbonizing and embracing technology, there's also got to be an opportunity. And where there's an opportunity, there's got to be an investment scope. And we were looking to actually set up a product which actually allowed investors to invest in the opportunity of the disruption. What I relatively quickly came to the conclusion was when the Chinese are involved, they have a multitude of priorities and making profits is probably one of the lower priorities, dominating the world, growing investment, building employment, investing in next technologies. They are absolutely a world leader in all of that. So I say it positively, having been a stockbroking analyst for 20 years, the stockbroking market, the finance industry in the West, in Australia, and in my career is enormously myopically short-sighted. And the Chinese are very, very long-sighted. So I say that in reverence to their ability to look and think generationally rather than by day by day and week by week. And people like Warren Buffett say, look, if you can get away without looking at a screen for a day, try it for a week. The world won't change and you'll be a better person for it. And the Chinese take that to the nth degree. So yes, we tried to invest in the opportunities, but what highlighted was the Chinese don't work on a profit motive the way the Western stock market does. Uh, I'm used to quarterly analysis of quarterly earning statements and stock markets moving on the back of that. The Chinese think in decades. So therefore, when you compete against the Chinese and it's a commodity product, they'll probably drive the price down to maximize their market share, which means if you're a Western competitor, you've got a serious problem. So it's very hard to make money in the um, technology disruption in energy. So I'd rather be a consumer and look at the merits to the entire economy of constant, ongoing, massive deflation. 
Yeah. Do you still keep a, a, an eye on that sector of technology disruption? Are there any interesting companies that you uh, keep an eye on? Um, I don't. I'm not no longer licensed to be a financial advisor because you can't be as an energy think tank. Uh, we don't actually provide any fi paid financial services. So, no, I'm not licensed to give advice. I still, 15 years later, the one company we didn't put in our fund that I always argue we should have was a group called Next Era Energy. They have been the best performing utility in the world. They have gone from being the third largest utility in the in America a decade ago. Now they're the largest. They're 114 billion market cap. They have delivered compound 7% EPS growth for 15 years in a row. They've quadrupled their earnings, their dividends. They've delivered and they are in fact the world's largest investor in renewable energies in the world even ahead of every Chinese company and they have been for 15 years in a row their managing director gave a speech to investors last week and he highlighted that they would invest five billion dollars every year in renewables going forward and 500 million dollars every year in batteries going forward for the, their five-year investment program they are the biggest investor in the world. They are the strongest performing utility in the world. They have been for 15 years. They're technology agnostic. Like They're also one of the biggest nuclear companies in the world. They, they were. They did own a big fleet of gas and coal. In their five-year plan, they are not spending a cent on new nuclear. They are not spending a cent on new coal. They are not investing in new gas. They are only investing in wind and solar and batteries. And so the it's a long answer to you, but it to me epitomizes the strongest, best performing utility in the world has done that by embracing the transition and by not investing in past industries, but transitioning, maximizing the cash flow of their existing business and investing in the future and doing that successfully. And they've been rewarded and they're doing it ever faster. And I'll finish on next year. Part of why I was reading that speech was the CEO forecast renewable energy deflation of 50% in the next five to 10 years. So he said, we have seen nothing yet. And he said that for both batteries and wind and solar. Yeah. So that's a very good uh, introduction to the topic that we actually are discussing today. So can you tell me a little bit about the topics of research that you've focused on recently? Um, obviously, you're very focused on the energy sector. What are some of the transitions that you see today? Probably one of the topics we focused on um, recently was has been Japan. Now, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo has made climate change and the energy transition one of his defining um, targets of his prime ministership in Japan. Now, I mention that because Japan has been something of a laggard along with Australia, um, probably more legitimately in Japan because of Fukushima. Fukushima threw out all of their long-term energy plans. They closed 30% of their total capacity overnight. It was all zero emissions. So they went from being a world leader on decarbonization to being one of the most fossil fuel dependent nations in the world on the back of Fukushima nuclear disaster. But Prime Minister Abe has embraced it more recently. He's the president of the G20. And so he hosted in Tokyo uh, the Bank of England's governor, Mark Carney, last week. He gave a speech of uh, the critical rise of Japan's role globally and how Japan is now the world's largest embracer of the TCFD. So Japan's gone, so the Task Force for Climate Related Disclosures, 
uh, probably got that acronym wrong, but the TCFD is how I think of it. Japan in one year has gone from nine companies to 199 companies committed to the TCFD, 1.2 trillion market cap and the world leading. So that to me is a hallmark of how Prime Minister Abe has been doing it. It's a bit like how the French did it with the Paris Agreement, getting all the corporates and all the key financial leaders to embrace it and let's do and then talk rather than talk and then do. So Prime Minister Abe's been doing that. And so I mentioned that because I looked at a, we wrote a report on Marabini just over a year ago. Now, the reason we did it was to highlight that Marabini was one of the biggest laggards in the world. Marabini was the, was the largest builder of coal-fired power plants in the world outside of China and India. And we wrote a report middle of last year. It's on our website, available free. We highlighted at Marabini's coal problem. Three months later, the, the president of Marabini put out an announcement saying they would never build another coal-fired power plant anywhere in the world. They would sell off their existing coal-fired power plant fleet and they would pivot to renewables and double their investment in renewables in the next five years. And a year later, Marabini has been true to their word. They've been exiting from coal plant development, building renewables, and bringing the might of one of the biggest trading houses in the world into this renewable energy transition. So that's one of maybe 12 major announcements in Japan in the last 12 months. So I would look at Japan as a key leader of transition, whereas a year ago it was like Australia, one of the big laggards. Yeah. You started off the Japan story by saying they came off from a relatively low level um, usage of fossil fuels, but a much higher dependency on nuclear power. Now, nuclear power doesn't have as many uh, emissions, but there's obviously a very big tail risk in, in terms of these big events. Where do you and AIFA stand on the use of nuclear power in terms of climate change and sustainability? Yeah, it's maybe a, it's a really good question. And ironically, when we were doing this clean energy investment fund, I couldn't get next year into the fund because my co-managing director uh, said, look, we're trying to market to ESG funds. Most ESG funds uh, do not invest in nuclear. And I'm going, yeah, but next year energy is a diversified portfolio. It's a world leader. It's never had a nuclear action and it's biggest investor in renewables, but we couldn't get over that hurdle. So it never got in. Now that was a straight analytical approach. What do our clients want to invest in? What do they exclude? And we were copying them to some degree. As an analyst and IEFA as an organization is technology agnostic to some degree, but where we are overtly negative on nuclear is that we are finance analysts. So when I look at the data, when IEFA looks at the data, we look at the 10 major nuclear power plant developments in the Western world under construction today. Most of them are 10 to 15 years behind schedule. Most of them are double or treble the original budget. So the cost to the consumer is prohibitively expensive and it's a locked-in capital subsidy normally for 20, 30, 40 years. So nuclear, in my view, is totally uneconomic without government subsidies. So when we look at it from a rational financial perspective, put aside the climate and just look at the financial economics. If someone tells you they're investing in nuclear without government subsidies, I will bet they will lose money hand over fist. Yeah. If we continue on that train of thought and take your analytical mind from sort of the perspective of an investor, 
what would you say are some of the key risks today stemming from uh, um, climate change? I'll maybe answer that. I mentioned Mark Carney, the Bank of England governor. Now, he has he's also the chair of the Financial Stability Board, which is a global organization looking at systemic risks to the financial market. So for your audience, he's obviously one of the most powerful men in finance regulation globally. And I love what he says. He just points out, if we don't deal with this, the costs of a disorderly transition are going to be a hell of a lot larger than they are going to be if it's an orderly planned transition. So the Bank of England did an analysis and they came up with a great headline number that there's potentially $20 trillion of stranded asset risks globally by middle of this century if we don't deal with it properly. Now, it's a big number. It's an impossibly big number, 20 trillion, not billion, stranded asset risks. Uh, now, I don't believe it'll happen because I don't believe that the financial markets, governments will sail off a cliff happily. Financial markets will hit that point far faster. And one thing I've learned in financial markets is they might be slow to act, but when they act, they move decisively. And if there is a train wreck coming, everyone will jump off board as fast as they can in order to avoid it. And that will tip global capital flows overnight to investing in the solution. So I'm an optimist. Obviously, if you track what the International Energy Agency is saying, they're saying the world is not on track for the Paris Agreement. We're in fact 100% off track. But I think there is a train wreck coming. The train wreck, the sooner it hits, the better in some respects, because financial markets really need to learn financially how much it's going to cost them. And I'd rather we hit that train wreck today than in 10, 15 years, because otherwise Mark Carney's number's right. 20 trillion is a number too big. It could destroy the global financial system. And that's what he's working on. Yeah. And I think... Um you mentioned that uh, these are costs that are not um, basically accounted for. Should we think of them as, as such as a risk where uh, this is just a delayed risk that in the end will come back and bite us? Absolutely. And if you think about it, we have an unpriced cost externality, that is carbon emissions. Now, we also have water pollution and air pollution. They're unpriced to a large degree. And it might sound strange, but in Australia, we've got no coal-fired power plant emissions controls. We're worse than India, if that's possible. India's got the worst air pollution in the world, but Australia is worse in terms of our emission standards. We don't have any. So it might sound strange, but I think India is far more advanced than we are in, in many respects. But if you think about unpriced externalities, the biggest one is carbon emissions. I mean, the world is polluting billions of tonnes of carbon emission. The European Union EUA pricing is 22, 25 euros per tonne. So talk about 40 Aussie dollars per tonne. They have a system-wide price on carbon. Now they've spent 10, 15 years getting to a point where it's finally a viable solution, a finally a viable system. Australia is yet to even move. Now, Neither is Japan, neither is China, neither is America. And so we can point to everyone else being laggards, but those countries are all doing their own version, whereas we're just in denial. Our government and our leading corporates are saying there's no problem because the profits are too big to be ignored. But ultimately, stranded asset risk means those assets, like you've got huge 
coal reserves. At some point, you just won't be able to use them because there will be a price on carbon or there'll be some other equivalent tax or the price of renewables will just keep dropping 10% every year and in five years' time, no coal plant in the world will be viable without government subsidies. And so having a coal mine with a 30-year life that you've only just finished building, be it in the Galilee or Bylong or any number of these coal plants, they will literally be unviable and will close. So you'll end up having an asset that you've invested in that you won't get an economic return on. And thermal coal to me is probably the number one exposure because it's the most emissions intensive fuel source in the world. And it's the one most technologically challenged. And Australia is most exposed because we're the world's biggest exporter of coal. Yeah. Let's get to the Australian economy a little bit later, but we've talked a couple of times about the term stranded assets. Just for our listeners that don't know what it is, what are stranded assets and what is sort of the main risk for investors of that? So if we think about a coal-fired power plant, a coal-fired power plant has a 40, 50-year life and you're going to invest today. It'll take you five years to build. You're going to invest, say, $2 billion, $2 billion US, $3 billion Aussie to build that coal plant. And then say a government in 10 or 15 years time in Australia says we're going to have a carbon price. Now, you're not going to get compensation if you own that coal-fired power plant because you've built it today, knowing at some point in the next 45 years, you are exposed if the government does move on climate change. So you've got no excuses. You can't say you weren't warned. You've just made a punt that there will be no carbon price or that you can get your money back fast enough in the next five or 10 years prior to that carbon tax so that when the coal plant is then worthless, you've already got your return on capital. Now, the reality is you can't get your return on capital and every major utility in Australia, the CEOs have all come out in the last year and said, the government can build a coal-fired power plant if they want, but we won't build it. We won't finance it. The banks have said they won't finance it because they do not believe it is an economically viable return. So the government's saying, well, we will now fund it. We will build it. Okay, that's a government prerogative to build a stranded asset. But the reason why the power utilities are saying that is the same as what Next Era said. Coal is not viable. Next Era has actually said every coal plant in America will close by 2030. Coal will have a zero market share. A decade ago, it was 50% of all power generation in America. Today, it's 27%. And next era, so not some greeny lefty um, environmentalist, or this is the CEO of the most successful utility in America saying coal will go to zero. It cannot compete even on a marginally costed fuel cost only against renewables. That's how fast he sees renewable deflation. So that is the definition of a stranded asset. You build a plant today, you plan to operate it for 40 years, but because of changing circumstances, you won't get an economic return over the useful life of that asset. So therefore, you'll end up writing it down. So it doesn't mean it closes necessarily. You just won't get an economic return on your investment. You will have a major write down. And Europe, that might sound a little far-fetched, but Europe, the last three coal plants built in Europe have all been written down by 70 to 100% in the last three years. Some of them were written down 70% before they were even commissioned in 2015, 16 and 17. And now the Netherlands, for example, has come out and said, you have to close them by 2030. The owners of those plants are going, oh, we want billions of dollars of compensation because you're saying we can't operate a coal plant that we've just built. Now, 
there is a carbon tax. They will get compensation. Will it be billions or will it be hundreds of millions? I'd bet the latter. I'm betting they will have further write-downs and further costs and they will be closed by 2030. But that legislative risk is effectively one of the factors you have to consider when you're investing in plants that have stranded asset risk. Now, this is a particularly uh, pertinent issue for institutional investors because they are big investors in infrastructure assets. And we spoke a little bit about this in the past, and, and I can remember that you sort of paraphrased the reaction of, from one of the investors that said, yeah, we don't want to invest in the canals of the 21st century. How is your thinking around that? Are, are they potentially holding stranded assets already? Absolutely. And so one of the biggest banks I was briefing four years ago, and I met 30 of their staff and we were talking about stranded asset risk and the head of global lending goes, oh, but we're smarter than everyone else. We'll trade our way out of it. And I reminded them that they just lost a billion dollars on a coal plant, a coal port up in Queensland called Wicket, Wiggins Island Coal Export Facility, and they lost half a billion or a billion bucks and written it down. And I reminded them, well, that was a coke and coal port. They still lost their money. They lost their shirt. Investors overall lost more than $4 billion on that port. The port is only worth $2 billion. It's never made a viable return on investment. And it is a stranded asset. Now, it's an unusual one because of circumstances. It was gold-plated. It was 150% debt financed. It was done at the top of the cycle. Anyway, for various reasons, it was probably one of the first stranded assets, but it was a pretty big one, a $4 billion coal port. So these assets are all through the Australian economy. I mean, you think $75 billion was invested only five years ago in Gladstone. Now, gas prices trebled in Australia since Gladstone came online. The US gas prices halved. And so now the US is building hundreds of billions of dollars of new LNG export terminals. They will be built at half the price Australia paid. They will have a fuel source that is a quarter of the Australian wholesale fuel price. And so the chance that Gladstone makes an economic return over its useful life is precisely zero. They've already been written down billions of billions of dollars each. Each of them are $25 billion investments. There'll be more multi-billion dollar write-downs. So those assets are around investors, superannuation owners, pension funds are aware of it, but they don't really know how to quantify it. They don't know where the assets are because there's no price signal. And that's ultimately, I think the best price signal is a price on carbon. If this externality has to be addressed, let's put a price on it and let's actually let investors make an informed decision. The sooner you do that, the sooner you minimise the cost, the sooner you avoid the Mark Carney $20 trillion of losses. Um, and if you think I'm being too idealistic here, what I find really interesting is Macquarie Group's announcement in September of this year in New York. They announced that they were going to be one of the top five investors in renewable energy in the world in the next five years, 20 billion US dollars to build 20 gigawatts of renewable energy, and they're going to put it in their global infrastructure funds. So that is the CEO of one of the best investment banks in the world from, an in, from a return on shareholders funds and a, from a return to shareholders perspective, uh, declare an interest. I'm a long and happy shareholder. Um, they have committed to being one of the top five investors in renewable assets in the world, and they call them infrastructure assets. So I think it's a really important point that infrastructure investors, asset owners, 
will be a core part of the solution because you need trillions and tens of trillions of dollars of new investment. That is your green bond market. That is your infrastructure market. And uh, anyway, Macquarie's leading the way in that area. Yeah. So let's move then to uh, the focus on this particular issue, the, the, the fossil fuel intensive companies. Now, some of the institutional investors are trying to divest from some of the most um, intensive uses of these uh, fossil fuels. And I can think of, for instance, the Norwegian fund, um, which ironically has made a lot of money through oil, uh, but is now divesting from some of these companies. But once you get to the point uh, or the discussion around divesting, there's also a, a fiduciary angle to it where you say, okay, well, we see why we want to do this way, but at what point are we moving too far away from the benchmarks that we set ourselves? And is our portfolio still looking the same as what we started off with? Now, you might say, no, it looks better. But from an economic perspective, you can also say, well, we might be now exposed to certain uh, risks or skew to certain topics or thematics that we might not necessarily set out with. How do you think around that issue? Well, you use the word might, and I appreciate the question. I think it's a really key one. It's one I get from investors all the time, so it's spot on. But Mark Carney and the Bank of England and the Financial Stability Board all argue there is no might about this. The scientists have made their determination. So you can either be a climate denier, a science denier, or you can accept the science that the scientists are telling us. Well, 97% of the scientists or you could listen to the paid lobbyists or the last 3% who are paid by the Koch brothers. I would rather go and accept the science of climate change. I would accept the 97% majority and I will go with that. And so will Mark Carney. So what he says is you therefore have a fiduciary duty. You have a known financial risk. BlackRock has written a number of reports saying this risk is not priced in the market. When they copy what the Norwegians have done and then they move to implement systematically a method to manage this acute financial risk, that will be the catalyst to change the global financial markets. Because when BlackRock moves, when they align with what the Japanese pension system and what the Norwegians are doing, when the biggest asset owners in the world are doing it, everyone else will follow. And so the pricing will happen, in my view, I'm pretty confident. But one of the pushbacks I get is, as you said, well, the index has all these carbon intensive assets in it. So I'm going to ignore the fact that there's a downside risk and just say, oh, well, I'm an index hugger. I've got to stay close to the index until the index changes. Well, what you could do is take a low carbon index. You could do an MSCI free index with a low you carbon. You could change tilt. the benchmark. You could change the benchmark. And the impact on your risk profile would be minuscule. Absolutely minuscule. BlackRock actually has analysed this. The Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund has got McKinsey to analyse it to its death because they're investing a trillion dollars for a tiny country and they don't want to put financial returns at risk. Uh, they would argue there's a fiduciary duty to analyse and price in and factor in a known risk. Uh, maybe one of the problems I get is people go, yeah, but you can't prove historically that this is a financial risk, that there's downside. So my response to that is if we're heading towards a cliff, we know there's a cliff coming, we don't know when it's going to hit, but Mark Carney and the Bank of England have said it's a $20 trillion cliff. It's a pretty big one. 
then you actually have a fiduciary duty to get off the train before it reaches one metre from the cliff because you're not going to be the smartest person in the room jumping off at the last minute. You get off and you manage for the risk. You actually bring in systematic management of it. So to me, we have a financial risk. We know about it. The Your clients have a fiduciary duty to invest for the maximum long-term risk-adjusted return for their clients, not for the myopic one-week return. I like the way you characterise climate change deniers as science deniers, and I think uh, we've got a few of those in Australia. But if we take a look at the Australian economy, it is very heavily dependent on a fossil fuel-intensive um, industry. But on the other side, we also probably have abundance of sunshine that we could harvest in other ways. Do you see any change, um, any shift happening in Australia at the moment? I do. And it's it's a really important point because much as Australia is a laggard at the moment, we do have, I think, a bit of a sea change in our finance market. We are seeing the major financial institutions looking to evaluate properly this financial risk. Uh, we have Macquarie Group being one of the three biggest or five biggest investors in this area in the world. Uh, we have APRA, we have the Reserve Bank, we have ASIC, we have the ASX talking about this risk, telling directors they have a fiduciary duty to evaluate and respond to this risk. So it's not like anyone sitting here listening to what the Canberra bubble is talking about. We have corporates and financial industry leaders actually looking to embrace the change. Probably the person I find uh, most convincing in this area is Dr. Finkel. Dr. Finkel has embraced the hydrogen strategy blueprint. He's got the federal government to get out of the bubble and embrace that and fund it and talk about where Australia will likely be in 20 or 30 years if this transformation happens, if renewable energy keeps getting 20, 30, sorry, 5, 10, 15% cheaper every year for another decade, that turns it from an if to an absolute it's going to happen. And that's what Dr. Finkel talks about. He says Australia can be the world's biggest renewable energy superpower as an exporter. And he says the land required is enormous. It's the size of one, he actually says three quarters of one cattle station. We could supply a tenth or half the world's hydrogen. I forget which number he uses. It depends how quickly the, the sector doubles, 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 doubles again, which is what he's forecasting to happen. And he says literally less than one cattle station could supply all of the wind and solar for Australia to be the world's biggest exporter of zero emission hydrogen. The Japanese, the Koreans and the Chinese would love Australia to be the world's biggest supplier of clean hydrogen so they can decarbonise, so we can drive the cost down. We can use the power of a $2.7 trillion asset management pool to invest in low-cost renewable energy wind and solar, convert it using batteries into zero emissions, hydrogen, export it. But to me, what'll ha that's a 10, 20, 30-year vision. Dr. Finkel talks about it far more eloquently and informed than I do. He's brilliant. I'm just copying and stealing from him. But what I like about it is uh, there are a multitude of Australian companies and financiers looking at it. People like Siemens have been working in this area for five or 10 years, but they're now investing in Australia because they see we've got the land, we've got the solar, we've got the wind resource, we've got the financial capital, and um, 
we've got the ability and we've probably got the need as well because we're the world's third largest fossil fuel exporter. We need to be an export-oriented nation. We need other alternatives to substitute. To me, clean hydrogen could well be it. But to me, there's also an opportunity a decade before that to actually use zero-emission hydrogen to decarbonise our existing manufacturing. And I was delighted to see Incitec pivot say that they are going to use 20% renewable energy contribution to their ammonia nitrate manufacturing facility in Queensland, working with ARENA to progressively decarbonise our heavy industry, because it's only when the heavy industry stops fearing the transition and starts embracing the opportunity that where the government's going to move, because they're really worried about jobs and investment, and I understand that. Yeah. So interestingly enough, um, some of your analysis shows that the developing economies are actually further ahead in this transition than, than the developed market is. Is that just simply a matter of uh, you know the advantage of being a late adopter or is there something else going on there? Yes, it's, it's a really good question and, and I might pivot to India for a minute to answer that. And the word a late adopter, it's absolutely spot on, but it's also a bit insulting. So why do I say it's spot on? Because... Unintentional. No, 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 no. And because uh, I would argue we're so early in the transition, India is now a world leader in embracing the opportunities. Prime Minister Modi was in New York back in September talking at Climate Week about India's ambition to build 450, 460 gigawatts of renewables by 2030. Now, that's half a trillion dollars of new investment in renewable energy, another $200 billion of investment in grid connectivity expansion. So we're talking three quarters of a trillion dollars of commitment in the next 11 years by India. So India is going to enter the decade beyond this one as one of the top two or three players in the world in renewables if Prime Minister Modi can deliver on his vision. And I believe he categorically will. And I'll say that with no questioning because today the price of renewables in India is two and a half to three rupees a kilowatt hour. That is down 50% on three, four years ago. That is 30% cheaper than existing thermal power generation in India. It is 50% cheaper than imported thermal power in India. And so there's an absolute economic rationale today for why India is doing it. And so Prime Minister Modi embraces the deflationary nature of renewables. He also embraces, more importantly, energy security because India is one of the world's largest importers of fossil fuels. So he's not doing it to save the planet from climate change. He's doing it to remove the $200 billion a year of imports of fossil fuels that India faces that will only double if he delivers on his economic growth strategy. He can't afford that. The people of India can't afford it. So he's looking and embracing renewables and has for the last six years. And he's put the weight of the world's third biggest economy behind this is one of his top priorities, and he's doing it for economic reasons. He's doing it for energy security reasons. And by the way, the World Health Organization said India's got 13 of the 20 most polluted cities in the world, so he's doing it for an air pollution issue. They also have a massive water security problem, and coal and coal-fired power plants and nuclear are very water-intensive, whereas the amount of water required for a solar project can be zero with the right technology. And so when you actually don't have enough water to feed your people, and by the way, 70% of all crops in India are irrigated, 
because they're trying to feed 1.3 billion people. Water security is going to be one of the biggest issues. I mean, we in Australia now understand that. We've got a massive drought, but what's the most intensive water-intensive product beyond cotton? Coal. Yeah. So the costs of renewable energy are falling, um, and so it just makes good economic sense to have some of these projects in, in place. But what are some of the immediate changes that you see more globally for, for as a result of these falling prices? It is solar in particular, but wind and electric vehicles and lithium-ion batteries are a very disruptive group of new technologies. And I use the word disruption. They're not just positives. They are very disruptive. They're going to do a lot of damage to the incumbent industry, and they also do more damage to the competitor than they create value for their shareholders. So in Australia, we're grappling with that right now. Solar, when solar is full on in the middle of the day in South Australia, prices of electricity go negative. It destroys the value of the incumbent industry before it makes, and in fact, it never makes a return to its shareholders unless they've got a 25-year power purchase agreement and so therefore they're not exposed to the spot market. And by the way, that is how India is doing it, that's how China is doing it, that's how America is doing it, and that's how Australia is doing it. So the risk gets transferred from the solar and wind project to the consumer or to the industry. Uh, so that is a form of subsidy, that is a risk that needs to be addressed. This is very disruptive and well before you make a viable return on your solar project, you destroy the viability of a 24-7 baseload coal plant because for eight hours of the day, that baseload coal-fired power plant is unviable because solar has a zero marginal cost. So it will destroy the viability of the coal plant. And that's why we've seen 10 coal plant closures in the last 10 years in Australia. We've seen no coal plant built and we never will again because they're not economically viable and solar is a really disruptive, destructive force. So that's the negative, that's the risk, but the opportunity is also there because if we then think about how do you take a negative wholesale price of electricity, that is gold to someone who owns a battery or who owns pumped hydro storage or who owns a gas peaker, because the price of wholesale electricity becomes more variable. It will be negative $1,000 more frequently, but it will then also go to positive $14,000 when the sun's not shining and when the wind's not blowing. And so that provides the financial incentive for a massive multi-billion dollar, tens of billions of dollars of investment in pumped hydro storage, solar thermal grid connectivity, lithium-ion batteries, and demand response management. So the nature of solar is so disruptive, it will drive us towards the solution to the point that Canberra is always talking about. Renewables are intermittent. They are disruptive. Reliability is key. Now, the answer is not more 24-7 baseload power. That's last decade's solution to this decade's problem. We need peaking capacity and batteries, pumped hydro storage, peaking gas are the solution. So with all the disruption going on, um, who do you think will be the ultimate winners? Is that the more upcoming new companies or do you think that the incumbent energy companies will be able to adapt enough to uh, survive this disruption? That's a good question. We did a report on that three years ago, looking at the top 10 utilities in the world. And we called them the good, the bad and the ugly. And then we thought that was a play on John Wayne. So we then changed it to the leaders laggards. Um, 
we deleted the word dinosaurs. But the reality is you have leaders, you have transformers, and then you have the dinosaurs. So Mark Carney, again, just to quote the governor of the Bank of England, came out in September and said the dinosaurs will die. There is no question on that. So the Peabody's of this world will die. They are not transitioning. They are not embracing their future. They're trying to hold it back and their product is obsolete. Thermal coal is obsolete. It is technologically challenged and going to disappear on a 30-year view. Not tomorrow, not next decade, but on a 30-year view. And next year, Energy CEO says it will happen in 11 years. So it's not me saying it, it's Mark Carney, it's the CEO of the most successful utility in the world saying it, it's the CEO of Macquarie Group saying it, this will happen far faster than people think. So when we did the leaders, ironically NL of Italy and Next Year were our two favourite leaders, we then talked about the Transformers, AGL, Tata Power, NTPC, so two Indian companies. Companies that are acknowledging the transition and saying, okay, well, AGL is the biggest polluter in Australia. Mea culpa, it is. But it was also embracing the technology disruption and using the cash flow and investing in wind, solar, um, virtual batteries and those sort of things. So they're a transformer. They will survive. They will transition to the new industry. But the laggards will not. And we highlighted ESCOM, not a listed company, but the biggest power generator in South Africa, 95% of the South African power generation. And we highlighted three years ago, it was going to go bankrupt. It is now going bankrupt. It's in financial distress and it's destroying the South African economy. But before it destroys it, what it's done is quadrupled the price of electricity in South Africa. So it's bankrupting the country, not just the government who owns it and not just its own employees. So it is dragging the whole of the South African economy down through massive inflation, price inflation of electricity. Obviously, there's corruption involved, there's financial leverage involved, there are cost blowouts on their coal plants, there are huge subsidies involved, and it's a huge. I was in Cape Town earlier this year and we were analysing it and looking at the opportunity to bail out ESCOM to save the South African economy. Ten of the world's biggest Europe investment banks were working on that program to save ESCOM. The irony is bailing out a coal-fired power company, but I 100% understood once they explained what they're doing, it was totally logical it will have to happen because the alternative is a bloodbath for one of the biggest countries in the world. Yeah, so some very significant tail risks involved in this topic. Correct, and really hard to actually analyze them and hard to show. One of those tail risks, General Electric, we wrote a report on that in uh, earlier this year looking at General Electric. Now, everyone in Australia would think, well, General Electric was the most successful industrial company in the world at one stage in 2000. It had a market cap at 600 billion US dollars. So it was the biggest company in the world. But we wrote a report saying the value destruction to investors in the three years, 2016 to 2018, you know, the last three years, they destroyed 75% of shareholder wealth in just three years, $200 billion. So other than my old employer, Citigroup, it's probably the biggest shareholder wealth destruction in world history, $200 billion. And that was GE, General Electric, the company that used to be visionary, is now a minnow of its former self. Shares are down. They've been smashed. They've sacked thousands, tens of thousands of workers. Shareholders have paid the price enormously. Now, what caused that? 
They are the biggest producer of gas and coal-fired power turbines. And in 2015, they doubled their exposure by buying Alstom off the French government as Alstom was going bankrupt, doubling down on an industry that then, on their own numbers, halved in the following two, three years. So gas turbine installs in the world in the three years to 2018 halved on GE's numbers. Our numbers support that. GE forecasts they would grow. So they got it wrong. They had huge financial leverage. They destroyed 75% of shareholder wealth in the process, $200 billion. To me, that's a classic stranded asset story. And it's one of the, I mean, it's one of the biggest in the world. Everyone knows GE, everyone understands those numbers. They can look it up on a screen and see the value destruction. But that's only a tip of the iceberg if Mark Carney's right. Yeah, and I think that's also a good argument to keep an eye on fundamental analysis. Well, Tim, thank you very much. It was great having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.